as we have walked through the Gospel of John, and what a joy it's been, we have seen a certain theme, not only a theme as far as the truth in the Gospel of John, but also a theme as far as the pattern of the Gospel of John. I don't know if you've noticed, but what Jesus does here specifically in this Gospel is he often teaches a spiritual truth through a practical and physical means. We remember John chapter 4 where Jesus has a conversation with a woman, a Samaritan woman at the well. And the conversation is about the well and about the water in the well. And Jesus points out that she's thirsty for much more than anything that's found at the bottom of the well. No, she is thirsty for something found at the bottom of her heart that her lifestyle, the mistakes she has made, has uh, revealed that she needs a thirst quenched that water knows nothing about. So in that moment, Jesus says, if you believe in me, then springs of living water will come out of you. Or if you remember from John chapter 6, where Jesus multiplies the bread and the fish, and he feeds, and he sustains, and he fills the stomachs of over 5,000 Jewish people. It's in that moment he says, I am the bread of life. In the same way the water at the well could only satisfy for a moment. In the same way that bread that he multiplied could only satisfy for a moment. He who is the living water, he who is the bread of life, not only saves us, he satisfies us. And hallelujah, what good news that is. So now here as we are in John chapter 8 and John chapter 9, Jesus has said twice that he is the light of the world. And then not by accident, that spiritual truth is accompanied by a practical, physical miracle. But as we studied last week, when we studied the first seven verses of this chapter, when Jesus restores the sight of a man born blind, it's not just the physical miracle. No, it's the spiritual miracle that also counts as well. There's two miracles in this story. This blind man who could not see for a second of his life, now his physical eyes are open. But even more important than that, his spiritual eyes, the darkness of his soul, Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, shines into it, and now his spiritual eyes are opened as well. So not only do we see the two miracles of the blind man, but when we study this blind man's story, he helps us see. He helps us not only to see Jesus, but he helps us to see this, friends. Ready? That darkness goes so much deeper than the amount of physical light in a room that those who claim to see actually cannot see. And those who claim to represent God are actually lost in darkness. So, this is how the entire chapter begins, but it's also how the entire Gospel of John begins. Do you remember from one of our first studies in this masterful, beautiful biography of the life of Jesus Christ, it starts out with this declaration. It is so rich. It is so beautiful. And it's why we keep returning back to it. John chapter 1, verse 14. Lord, give us not only eyes to see, but ears to hear. John begins with this proclamation. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. God descended from his throne in Christ. God the Son became a son of men. The infinite became finite. The word Jesus Christ took on flesh and dwelt among us. Now listen. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Now, what's interesting about this passage here is that up until this point, up until this moment, this blind man who can see with his physical eyes hasn't seen Jesus. So we are in the same place as this blind man. He heard Jesus's words. We're going to hear Jesus's words in scripture. He has been given sight And yes, we have seen him. We have not seen him with our physical eyes, but he has opened our spiritual eyes. So we are in the same place as this blind man. And yes, we can now appreciate how the gospel of John begins. I like how one translation says it. Not only we have seen his glory, we beheld his glory. As you've heard us teach and talk about, when the Bible says, behold, it's not just directional, it's devotional. It's not just horizontal, it's vertical. It's not just a matter of, hey, look, it's a matter of, Lord, let me worship you. We behold his glory. Friends, what's the most glorious thing you've ever seen? Perhaps in your journeys, in your life, the places you've gone, the things that you've experienced, what's the most glorious thing you have seen? I would love to have a conversation at some point and just Hear about what you have seen with your physical eyes. I know that the Lord has blessed me in my life and I've been able to travel. I've been able to live in not only Ireland, not uh, visit Ireland, live in Central America, visit the Caribbean. I've seen sunsets at the Big Sur off the California coast. I've seen glaciers and grizzly bears in Montana. I've seen cliffs and castles in Ireland. I've seen the Grand Canyon. Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? What's amazing about the Grand Canyon is that it's really, in the end, just a big hole in the ground. (laughs) But it's so much more than just a big hole in the ground, right? I mean, when you look at it, when you stand on the precipice of this gigantic, majestic canyon, your mind almost can't take in all the information that you're seeing, it's that big. It's that grand. It's that masterful. Whether it's Grand Canyons or when I lived in the rainforest of Belize and every single morning I would wake up to the sound of howler monkeys. Does anyone know what a howler monkey sounds like? I won't duplicate it. You're welcome. (laughs) We would see toucans and we would see scarlet macaws flying over our thatch roof huts. I mean, By God's grace, I've seen some pretty cool stuff. Most of all, the most glorious thing I've seen is the birth of my five babies. Five babies, praise God, amen. And not only the miracle that is life, these babies that were fearfully and wonderfully made, knit together in Melissa's womb, not only am I in awe of their birth, who am I also in awe of? My wife. Tears every single time, not only because of the baby, not only because of the Ethan, the Abigail, the Joshua, the Liam, the Annabelle, but because of Melissa Gale Durkin and how much of a superstar that girl is. Just in awe. 
When we think about the things that we have beheld, when I think about the things that I have beheld, the most powerful thing that I have ever seen is something that I haven't witnessed with my physical eyes. The Bible talks about that we should walk by faith and not by sight. Not only that, it takes it to the next level. As if to say, what is most important is not what you can see, but what you cannot see. Everyone, listen. This is a beautiful, powerful word from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you are in a place of hardship, if you are in a place of suffering, or if you are able to say with gladness, even if times are good, that this is true. I hope everyone has ears to hear. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 talks about sight and heart. Sight and heart. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Your Bible says beyond all comparison. Amen? Amen. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The Bible says the things that are unseen are eternal. What we see with our eyes and what we feel in our hearts and our bodies that are failing us is nothing compared to what's awaiting us. What's awaiting us will make all of these struggles seem light and momentary to the eternal weight of glory which we cannot see. Friends, have you ever wondered why you pray with your eyes closed? We were just taught to do that. Some of us were taught to do certain things with our hands. Some of us were taught to, do, to bend on our knees. Some of us, we lift our holy hands in worship to say, I surrender, God. I trust you, God. I am glad to know you, God. But you ever wonder why we close our eyes? Now, some of us might say, well, that helps me focus. I'm of the persuasion that it doesn't help me focus at all. In fact, when I close my eyes, that's when everything starts to play in my mind as if it's a movie on fast forward. No, in closing my eyes, yes, perhaps eventually helps me focus. But there's no commandment in the Bible to close your eyes when you pray. It's not like the Lord can't hear you unless your eyes are closed. What's the practice come from? Have you ever thought about it? It's not just to help you focus. No, it's to say, when I close my eyes and when I pray, I am trusting not in what I could see with my physical eyes, but what I know to be true with my spiritual eyes, that what matters the most is not just what I could see in this broken and dark world, but what I trust in, what I put my hope in, what I put my faith in, where I find my security and my identity, and that I can't see, at least not with these. So this blind man is in the same place as us. And what we're going to see is not only do we see better after hearing and seeing his story, but when we see the reaction of the crowd, when we see the reaction of the religious establishment, it's going to reveal our blind spots as well because we all have blind spots. We all have a certain lens. We all have a certain worldview that we see the world through. And God's word helps to shine the light of the world onto those blind spots to help us see so we can know Jesus more fully and be bold with his gospel. Amen? All right, let's use those eyes and look at scripture, shall we? 
John chapter 9, starting here in verse 8, this is the word of the Lord. Here's the reaction to the miracle. The neighbor and those who had seen him, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Verse 9, some said it is he. Others said no, but someone like him. He kept saying, the blind man kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes open? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. Let's pause right there. So what we see here is first off what the people see. What we see here is what the people see. What we also see here is not what God sees. Because what did they see when they saw this blind man? They saw not only a blind man, what does it say? They saw a beggar. That's how they understood this man. They have walked by this man outside the temple gates, inside Jerusalem, in this vicinity, probably dozens if not hundreds and thousands of times. They knew exactly what he looked like, but it is interesting here, and not by accident, that they saw him only as a beggar. How does your God see you? Here's the good news. Your God, your Father, sees you differently than the world sees you. Whereas the world might say blind and beggar, God says you're made in his image. He loves you. Christian, he has given Christ so you could be saved and forgiven and reconciled and have a family forever. So how does God see us? It is different than how the world sees us. When someone labels you, when someone tries to stereotype you, when someone tries to categorize you, we need to shine the light of the gospel, hear the light of the world, say who we really are. And that's a son and daughter of God. Amen. Jesus didn't see a blind beggar. He saw one of his children and he was going to help him see again. Now, how do we get to that point? Ironically here, here's the irony. Here's the irony of the whole chapter is that this blind man was blind. This beggar was a beggar. And now he could see. And now he is free. And now he will be satisfied by the bread of life. So in the end, who's really blind? Who's the real beggar? Friends, the way that we have our sight restored, our spiritual sight, the way that we have our soul satisfied is we come to Jesus as blind beggars. We come to Jesus in humility and say, all right, every single time that I've tried to lead my life the way that I thought apart from you, it hasn't led to light, it's led to darkness. It's led to me making bad decisions because I was hungry for something more. It led me to being and acting like an absolute beggar. So yes, we come to God as beggars, telling other beggars where we found food. And now this miracle has happened and this man can see so they're all debating whether this is the man. Is this the man? The man that they walked past? The man that they could describe in exact detail? All of a sudden, they have a hard time believing that this man who can now see was blind just moments ago. Why? Why do they have a hard time seeing what is clear and obvious? Of course, it's faith, but it also help, should help give us confidence in the historicity of your Bible. What do I mean by that? Meaning that when people 
received the gift of sight, when that miracle happened, it's not like Greek mythology, where it seems like these miracles happened every other Tuesday. It's like Taco Tuesday. Instead of tacos, it was a miracle. So in some of these Greek fables and mythologies, people would hear about a miracle and then it would just be part of the story. No, the reason why these neighbors don't believe that this is the man who was blind is why? Because this doesn't happen. Blind men born from birth blind don't all of a sudden see. This is actually a real person. These are real witnesses. And they have a hard time believing. They have a hard time seeing that this man can see. So they're asking, where is the man? Is this the man? And who's the man that gave him sight? Let's continue in our study here in verse 13. Let's look at Bible. Let's look at the scripture. And let's see what the Lord continues to reveal. It moves from the neighbors now to the Pharisees. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formally, I love that word formally, been blind. Verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him who had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud in my eyes, and I washed and I see. Verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Let's pause right there. What do we see here? That there's an investigation into the miracle. And the investigation quickly becomes an interrogation. And what we see once again is what often happens with miracles. You see, friends, we often think, all right, if the Lord would just reveal his power and his might and give me that miracle, then everyone will believe. If we look at scripture, there's not only isolated accounts that miracles, physical, tangible miracles don't lead to saving faith, but oftentimes, every single time, there's mixed reactions to miracles. There's mixed reactions to miracles. We tend to think, all right, God, if you would do this, if you would break forth in the space and the time, then yes, then I will believe you. Not everybody does. Not everybody will. Why? Because here it is. You have those that claim to represent God. Some of the Pharisees, some of the most strict observance of Mosaic law, looking at this blind man who's looking back at them and saying, yeah, he did that on the Sabbath. It's against our rules against our regulations. Clearly, he's not from God. This man can see. Why is there division among even the Pharisees? Because they're looking at Jesus and they know that he is an observant Jew. They know that he's not a witch doctor. Yes, they will claim some of him that he is demon-possessed, but there is a conflict here. He's not a sinner. We haven't seen him sin. Oh, but he broke the Sabbath. Did he? Did he break God's law or did he break men's laws and people can't tell the difference? Some of us come from churches where that's the case. Because God's word isn't taught and shared and studied, we can't tell the difference between where men's words stop and God's words begin. We come from traditions where 
because we think we are so smart in our religious intellectual thought, we have to create a fence around the law. Or we have to create councils and magisteriums and all kinds of other edicts to protect people from the Bible. What? You see, this is not something new. This has always been part of the human condition. Some of us, we are prone to irreligion, finding our salvation in pleasure apart from God. Others of us, we try to find our salvation in Christ-less religion. All the while, our greatest quote-unquote joy is to receive the praise and the vanity of people thinking you're really, really holy. Jesus sees right through it. He sees right through it. He sees right through what? The fact that they can't see. Jesus sees right through the fact that they cannot see, even though they claim to be the ones that can. Spurgeon put it like this. As much as we see sinners, as much as we see people receiving Christ and believing in Christ and having their whole world, their whole lives, their whole forevers changed, we see people getting angry and angry at Jesus. It's simultaneous. Spurgeon put it like this. It's brilliant. He said, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Did you get that? Nobody got that. Okay, good. (laughs) The same sun which melts wax hardens clay, which means what? Spurgeon goes on. And the same gospel which melts some persons, some people to repentance, hardens others in their sin. Here's the light of the world. He is shining bright. He is shining a glorious supernatural miracle on this blind beggar. And it's not helping them see. It's hardening their hearts. And now they're going into deeper darkness. You wonder why they would want to crucify Jesus. Unless we come to Jesus as blind beggars, we will end up with hardened hearts, angry at God. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. That's why I love the story of the man named Saul, the most famous Pharisee who ever lived, became the greatest champion that the church has ever seen because Saul had a name change. Saul, on the road to Damascus, was knocked off his horse. Has anyone ever ever knocked off our horse? I like to say when you make your trip to Colts Neck, either you live in this town or you travel from out of town and you make your way to a town named after a horse, that God would literally knock you off your horse. That he would, on your way to Colt's Neck, knock you off your horse so that you could see. Listen, the most famous Pharisee who's ever existed, Saul, was not only knocked off his horse, but he was made blind. You remember this from the book of Acts? He was made blind, and then Barnabas comes. And in the same way Jesus heals this blind beggar, God uses Barnabas to help, or uses uh, Barnabas to help Saul see. And what does Saul see? Saul sees that not only was he in darkness, but he was perpetuating darkness. And that's why all of a sudden, his blindness leads to boldness. His blindness leads to boldness. Why and how? Because he's beheld Jesus. Jesus has called him in spite of him and has decreed to use him for his glory. When we leave the darkness, there should be boldness. Paul would later write in the book of Romans, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We're about to meet a couple, two parents, that could use some boldness, that could use some courage, because their baby boy who once was blind can now see, and they are afraid to be associated with him, much less the man who gave him sight. Let's conclude our study by reading here in verse 18, all eyes back on Scripture. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, they asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, his parents answered, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Can you hear this, friends? Ask him, they say. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Now, John gives some commentary to what's going on here in verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Does this bother you when you read it? probably should. It probably should. Why? Well, let's try to enter into the passage, shall we? This couple, from the moment that their baby boy was born, could not see. From the first moment that their baby born, flesh of their own flesh, drew breath, this boy could not see. Every single day and every single minute after that moment, he needed his mom and his dad. He needed his mom and his dad to provide for him, to guide him, to protect him, to serve him, to be with him because he could not see for himself. And now this boy who was born blind, now he can see. And now he is brought before the religious establishment and his boy who was blind, now can see, and they are afraid to even be associated with him? Why don't you go talk to him? He's a grown boy. He's a man of age. Now, we put ourselves in this position, right? Obviously, this, is, this touches very close to me because of my son Joshua, because of what happened to his eye, right? What's still happening with his eye. And truly, I struggle with this because I like to think, that if the Lord Jesus gave sight into that injured eye in my seven-year-old, watch out world, I would be on the rooftops proclaiming the power and the glory and the goodness of our Jesus. I'm still going to do that, by the way. <laughs> He's of age. Why don't you go ask him? It's cowardice cowardice. Someone once said, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Courage asks the question, is it right? Now, when John explains this, he explains it, and we should have a little bit of sympathy for this couple, because the religious climate at that time was that the Jewish establishment said, and this gives you insight into the fact that everybody knew who Jesus was. They knew his miracles and they knew his message. 
he is really turning over everything. There was an edict that went out that said anyone who professes Jesus to be the Christ, to be the the Messiah, to be the Savior, will be put out of the synagogue. Now, as our American Gentile ears hear that, we think, that's not a big deal. It doesn't take heresy for me to miss church. It only takes little Johnny's soccer game, and then I miss three months of it. I love you. I do. But you know what I mean? It's not that big of a deal for us. Church is the easiest thing to discard of. And who who am I preaching to? The choir right now, because you're here. My point is simply this. Whether it's soccer, whether it's sports, whether it's work, whether it's whatever, we get rid of church for a lot of us. For them, huge deal. Huge. Because it was the synagogue where they reconciled with God. It was the synagogue where their sins were atoned for. It was the synagogue where they heard the oracles of God, the word of God, And of course, in the end, it's social. It's the synagogue where they had their their customs and their traditions and their celebrations. To be cut off from the synagogue often meant you were cut off from your friends and from your family. But still, here is your own flesh. Here is your son, and you're afraid to speak up for him. So when I was studying this, I had two simultaneous reactions. These parents are terrible. Lord, forgive me. How could you not stand with your son who can now see or the one who gave him sight? But then I thought about it again. And I thought, my goodness. Why am I so afraid to share the name of Jesus when he's given me something even better than physical sight? Why are we so afraid to speak the name of Jesus? Now, nobody's afraid to speak the name of Jesus as a curse word. You notice that? Why am I so afraid to say I belong to him when he has given me true sight? He has given me everlasting life. He has given me grace and forgiveness and purpose, identity, a hope, and a future. Why do I have no problem going to church on Sunday, but then with all of my friends and family not knowing that I go to church at all? Why am I ashamed? Ever like even kind of marveled at it? Like Jesus has done so much, so much for me. He has gone. He has accomplished. He has purchased my salvation. How does courage begin? It's when we return back to the promises of God. Hebrews chapter 7 puts it like this. Consequently, he is able... Jesus is able. Consequently, Jesus is able. Amen? And we should just stop there. He is able. Jesus is able, what? To save to the uttermost. Can we say uttermost? Those who draw near to God through him, since he, Jesus, always lives to make intercession for them. Not only has Jesus gone to the cross, proclaimed to telestai, it is finished. He has atoned for every and all sin, past, present, and future. But now, as the risen, reigning Lord of all creation, he's praying for you. He's interceding for you. And that should lead to boldness. Robert Murray McShane said it like this. This is a great quote. Everybody ready? If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. We can't see it with our physical eyes. We can't hear it with our physical ears, but God's word says it. 
He's praying for you, Christian. So courage grows when we stand on the promises of God, but courage goes when we spend time in the presence of God. And that's why church shouldn't be the only time that we are thinking and meditating upon God's word, praying and worshiping. No, when we say amen, don't let that be goodbye. Let it overflow into your relationship and your discussion with your kids and with your spouses, with your workmates, with your family. Let it be something that transcends not only an awareness of his presence in your heart, but then it leads to boldness in your life. Then it leads to courage. Isaiah chapter 54 puts it like this. God says, For the mountains may depart and the hills will be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. Amen? And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And here's this verse. Here's this beautiful, powerful verse. Isaiah chapter 54. No weapon that's formed against you shall prosper. Oh, that's good. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Courage grows when our blindness recedes and we are given boldness. But courage also grows when we spend time being with Jesus, being with him, soaking in his presence and remembering his love. The Gospel of John begins by saying, we have seen him. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. How does the Gospel of John end? The Gospel of John says, in the beginning, we beheld his glory at Christmas when the word became flesh, the incarnation. How does it end? With another person saying, behold. Listen to this from John chapter 19. Pontius Pilate, the governor who oversaw Jesus' trial, who led Jesus to being scourged and beaten, whipped, and had a crown of thorns pressed upon his precious skull, humiliated and mocked, Pontius Pilate says this in John chapter 19. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Listen. So Jesus came out, envision this, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. What leads to greater boldness when we behold Jesus? not just the miracle of Christmas. We stop caring what the world might think when we look upon that forehead that had this crown pressed upon his head. When we think about how far our Jesus went to save us, the pain, the isolation, the darkness that the light of the world experienced so we could see why are we afraid? Why do we even care? We should care about their souls and not about their opinions. We should be filled with a true, humble boldness. Not only because it's true. Not only because your wife needs it, men. Not only because your family needs it. Your kids need it. This society, this world needs it. The invitation this morning is to believe. The invitation this morning is to behold. 
The invitation this morning is to not fall into the pattern of the crowd, the Pharisees, or even the parents, but to behold Jesus in his sacrifice. Say, if Jesus was willing to go to the cross for me, then I am willing to live my life for him. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are a good father. You are not only a father that speaks, you are a father that acts. You are a father that not only sent your son to perform miracles, but you're a father that sent your son to pay the price of our sin. And what a costly price it was. What an unthinkable, terrible price it was. That he who was absolutely sinless and perfect took on our sin, became sin, so that we could be made right and righteous in your sight. Oh Lord, may we come to you as blind beggars, looking for sight, hungry for food that has nothing to do with our eyes or our stomachs, but has everything to do with our hearts our belief. It's easy, Lord, to follow the crowd. It's easy, Lord, to just blend in. It's easy, Lord, to let these days turn into weeks, these weeks turn into years, and these years turn into decades because we're afraid of what people might say. Grant us sight so that when the blindness recedes, the boldness grows. Father, forgive us. May this be our prayer together. Forgive me, God, even as a pastor. Even as a pastor, I often fear what the world might say. No. When we're overwhelmed with the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, we are emboldened to speak, to act, to stand out and be set apart. Even if the whole world turns away, because of the grace of Jesus, I will not. My marriage, my family, my church, we will stand. Give us that boldness and that courage, Lord, and help us turn from our fear, help us turn from our sin, and help us behold Jesus, who has promised to never leave us nor forsake us. Please forgive us and fill us, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.